All right. Yes, sir. Can I just back up for just a second? Oh, of course, absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, in verse eight, and I and we hadn't gotten to that, and I missed that session. So, uh, so they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. The sound. So this would indicate, um, and you probably commented on it, that there had, I mean, didn't have to be, but there was some kind of physical presence or a spirit affecting the physical environment so that so as to create a sound. Is that is that right or is that, what is that saying there, Jim? Well, I mean, it, it's it, two things. Number one, it, it's the, the norm that God had followed with them before they chose rebellion was he would walk with them and fellowship with them in the garden. So the norm, God continues, and they hear God in the garden. And God, who you know obviously knows what has happened, asks them the question, where are you? I mean, not because God didn't, but he wants Adam to admit what he's done. But he's running from God. I mean, he, that's, he's naked, and that, we, we talked a lot about that term. That nakedness is not just an awareness of your genital being exposed, which wasn't an issue before sin, but it's also the guilt and the corruption and all that goes with the choice to rebel against God. And so now instead of having the fellowship, because God's holy, God's perfect, God's righteous, sin, sin cannot be comfortable in the presence of God. And therefore, they're running from God, and God is trying to call them to account. He's actually, in effect, asking them to confess what they've done. And so, I mean, it's just, I said this last week, and and, uh, I I repeated it earlier a number of times, but my wife, a number of years ago, just when we were talking about that, this passage, um, I don't remember why we started talking, but anyway, she said, you know, honey, Adam and Eve are the only human beings who know what they lost. And that's really true. They're the only human beings who know what they lost. They lost an intimacy with God that no human being has ever known. We will know that in the coming kingdom. You and I, what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. We know a degree of intimacy and fellowship with God. We will know it in all its fullness in the coming kingdom. But, I mean, that's really true. It's just, it's, it's, it's an an immensely tragic, the more I've meditated and thought on this for years, how absolutely horrific that must have been for them. The norm of God coming to them and fellowshipping, and they hear him, oh no. And they run, they're hiding. Why are they hiding? Because of the guilt. They now have the knowledge of evil. They have experienced evil, which God didn't want them to experience. But they've done it. Uh, they've joined the rebellion, and they're trying to hide from God. It's just absolutely—it's absolutely horrible. So does that answer your question? All right. Let's look at chat. Rob, did you have a question? Well, I did. Um, I can't help but think of the fall of Lucifer and the fact that God already has eternal souls. That's the right word, but beings on His hands, and. He didn't create human beings to become like that. So, in essence, if you wanted to hope for humanity, so, and I think that's what this verse implies, that he has to banish them. Otherwise, they have eternal life and they've strayed. That's right. They will eternally be in rebellion against him. 
and I mean with the depravity and, and all that goes with it. But God, God has another way, and so he's going to forever block. I, know I shouldn't say forever. He blocks that. The tree of life comes up again in Revelation 21 and 22. The tree of life is mentioned there. So, I mean, as one very creative theologian said, it takes about five minutes to see it. There's a tree at the beginning, and there's a tree at the end. That's not a terribly difficult deduction to make. You just read the two parts of the Bible, you see it. The tree of life is at the beginning, and the tree of life is at the end. And that parenthesis in between is he rebellion against God. It's so tragic that most oh, it's horrible. people do not study the book of Revelation. That's right. Churches. Yeah, the way we studied it. We're doing a study of heaven based on Randy Elkins. Oh, it's a wonderful book. Our, uh, oh, church. It's a great book. And the, the the leader last Sunday said, all of that is evidence that God has never given up on his original plan, right. which I thought was really a profound way of looking at this. Because you even, you even begin to see the beginning of it here. That's right. No, that's exactly right. That's another theologian put it this way. God's plan was just interrupted by this vast parenthesis of rebellion. It, you know, but his plan, he's still, his plan is not done. And, that, and that's what Paul's argument in Romans 5 is that. What was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. And so, I mean, that's exactly the right way to think. The parenthesis from God's perspective is the human rebellion. Well, the, the cosmic rebellion, because it includes Satan too, but it's a rebellion. But that's just, from God's perspective, it's a parenthesis. That's why, and this is so impossibly hard for you and me to get this. From God's perspective, time, this sounds weird, but time's irrelevant. Because God's eternal. From God's perspective, time's irrelevant from what he's doing. That's what I mean by that. I mean, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's from what he's doing. Because it's just his perspective of things. I've got this huge parenthesis, and we're going to just work through this till we get back to why I started all this in the first place. And, you know, it's just, but God doesn't give up. And, and I'm giving up in this plan. He doesn't give up on humanity. He st- they still must choose him, but he doesn't give up. So we have Fall of Lucifer, we have the fall of man. That's right. And going in triad thought, what's the next fall? Um, well, I'm not sure there is another fall. <laughs> really, I mean, uh, the, the I mean, there is no final fall in, in the sense of if the, the the word fall is a metaphor for rebellion, um, the, there is no third fall. All right, let's look at chapter 4, which is a not, not a real uplifting chapter either. Now, verse, verse, verse 1, let me back up for just a minute, and you see this a little bit in the notes, but Adam and Eve's family suffered sin's dysfunction. That's what I titled that at the top of page 8. What you see in, uh, uh, what you see in chapter 4 and actually into chapter 5 I'm going to put it this way, is the spread of sin motif. What started with Adam and Eve now spreads through the human race, meaning their children, because when they sin, there are no children yet, but it spread. <coughs> and I mean, it's just, I, you know, being a parent, 
and most of you around the table are parents. Being a parent, you, you see your children and you're going to hope for something different for your children. And what they see among their two boys is the worst possible scenario you could imagine. One of them kills the other one. Now, Adam knew his wife. Remember, knew is a euphemistic language for sexual intercourse. And she conceived and bore Cain. So Cain's the firstborn, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The, the importance of that statement is, is, is significant because it is the Lord that is, and notice it's Yahweh, it is the Lord which is fostering, encouraging, it's part of his creative work of procreation. So she's saying this as a dependent being. I'm dependent on the Lord. He, he said I would have children. That takes you back to Genesis, the, uh, the first part of that curse. But it's with the Lord. And she, this is a language of blessing. It's a language of, of I'm mimicking what God did as a creator. I am participating in creation too, the procreation of life by God's grace. And she bore his brother Abel, the two boys, Cain's first and Abel. Now, the description of what they did is important. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So Abel's a shepherd, Cain's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That means a sacrifice. So they both are bringing a sacrifice. They're both bringing, and this is something that's just consistent through Scripture, you bring the fruits of what you make, what you do to the Lord. Everything you do is to be for the Lord. And it's in 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know, do all to the glory of God, etc., all of those things. So they bring them. What the Bible apparently wants us to conclude here is there is a difference in their attitude. There's a difference in the attitude with which they come to the Lord with the sacrifice. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. And the Lord, and again, the word there's Yahweh, had regard for Abel. What does that mean? It it must mean it isn't the sacrifice. It is the attitude with which the sacrifice is brought, the motive with which the sacrifice is brought, the intent with which the sacrifice is brought. God is responding not to the sacrifice, but to Abel. Did you see that? Regard for Abel. And his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The way in which we are to perhaps understand this is Cain as looking at this as a mere duty, an obligation. I go through the motion. Abel is understanding it and doing it at a much deeper level. It's worship. 
It's substitution. It's bringing all that I do to God for blessings. He put it another way, Cain's going through the motions. Abel is 100% giving himself to God. And the sacrifice symbolizes that. How, how, how do you come to that conclusion? I, I don't understand it. Um, that he would look in favor of, of the of the offering of meat, but not of... That, well, it, it, because it, it's not just... It's the term regard, had no regard. Had regard, had no regard. And the focus in both is on the person, not just the sacrifice. You follow me? Yeah. So let's... Um, well, this isn't exactly a good analogy, but let's... Let's just put it this way. I go to church. My wife goes to church. We both you know, go to church together. I'm, I'm making it all up, but I'll just put it this way. It's something we believe is important in life. It's something we, we want to do. But I go to church with, okay, I got to do this. It's a duty. It's an obligation. All right, I'll go. My wife goes to church. We go together, but she goes, I'm going to church to meet and pray and worship with my other brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done everything for me. He's given. Which one does God have a regard for? We're both doing it, Woody. We're both offering a, you know, if you will, a sacrifice to God. We're both bringing the fruits of what we do to the glory of God to him. One is saying, all right, I'll do it. I guess I'm supposed to do that. I'll do it. And the other says, I delight in doing this. I owe everything to God. He created me. He loves me. Everything I do, he's provided for me. Naturally, willfully, intentionally, I want to come to him. Which one does God regard? Put that way, you know, your wife is excited about going to church. Yeah. <laughs> Just doing what you think is your But again, it's it's the term regard. With God had a high regard for what in, in verse uh, verse four. He had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. Cain, he had no regard. It's like it's you, you, this is Woody, it's always that way throughout the scriptures. When we get to, you know, we, we're not studying that, but if you would read like the prophets and the minor prophets, over and over and over and over again, God says, don't bring me your sacrifice. I don't want them. Got, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what this is all about. Bring your burnt offerings. Bring your peace offerings. I don't want them. And he explains why. Because your heart is not right. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't want this to be something perfunctory. I want you to mean it and understand the substitution of nature is, or don't do it. And so it's like one goes through the motions, Woody, because, okay, I have to do this. The other delights in doing it. And you see the attitude of Cain in the very next verse. You see what was wrong with Cain. It was his attitude, his demeanor, his reason for doing this. 
And when he sees that God is pleased with Abel, but not pleased with him, instead of saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've got, I've got to reorder my priorities. I, I'm really not coming to worship and sacrifice you with the right attitude. And I own up to that. That's not how he responds. Anger, jealousy, bitterness, and he plots the murder of his brother. There's something wrong with Cain's attitude, his motivation, his heart. And that's what God, God, and, and that's this dialogue that God tries to talk Cain, if you put it this way. God tries to talk Cain out of his sin and his rebellion and his attitude problem. He tries to talk him out of it. Beware, Cain. What I am starting to see in you is going to result in nothing but evil for you. And, of course, you know what happened. All right. Uh, any? I saw another hand. Joel, did you have your hand up? Oh. I've, got a, I've got a question about three. What, where are you... Where are you seeing that Cain is just kind of getting around to it? Is it because it starts worse in the course of time? It means he's eventually getting around to it, where Abel's the first part? I'm trying to... I, from the text, I'm using ESV. In, uh, in verse 3, in the course of time, is that the, the phrase? So you're saying that it's just a task for him that, oh, I forgot, I better, I better bring it? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it's... Yes. I understand Cain's coming, and why was that not seen as just wrong just because it wasn't the first crop? Well, it wasn't more likely. It wasn't the first pressing of the fruit, right? It wasn't the rage. It wasn't. It doesn't say that. It does say that of Cain's, uh, of Abel's. Abel, the first, right? the first one. That, that could be. It could be. Uh, again, uh, I don't know if we can be that specific. I mean, maybe we could. There's no indication that this is the first fruits of what Cain had produced as a farmer. It, 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 the, the language of this is it's a perfunctory duty obligation. Okay, I got to do this. Sure. Instead of I really want to do this. But the, the course of time would, would have to be. I mean, the crops have to grow. Ahead. Yeah. Time has to elapse. Yeah. Time has to elapse for, for the animals to, to uh, procreate and, and uh, develop. Well, and the. And that's true. Uh, Whether you're raising sheep or animals or growing crops. I mean, as I think is typical of the Bible, that it doesn't include every detail of the history. It includes the high points. Well, if you look again at verse 3 of of Cain, brought an offering of the fruit, Abel, the first fruit of his flock. Now, I, I I, I think we can make something of that. I mean, it's really what we don't have, and this, but it's 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 okay, I guess, that we don't. We don't have God commanding them to do this. This is what I want you to. I want you to do this. I want you to do this, and this is how I want you to do it. We don't have that. But what seems to be the intent here is they are both bringing the fruit of what they do to the Lord. Because remember, Adam and Eve their parents, first humans, they, they have the sense, they've walked with God, everything they do is for the glory of God, they participate in this wondrous creative cultivating of all that's in the garden, and in a rebellion, they join that, and then Abel and Cain are their children, and you know, what did they see mom and dad do? 
what did they, how did they see how mom and, mom and dad are offering sacrifice? Mom and dad are fellowshipping with God, not in the intimacy they enjoyed in the garden. So they're learning it, they see it. And the focus of chapter four is on one thing, not how did they learn all this? How were they taught this? What were the, the, the focus isn't on that. The focus is on one thing, the attitude with which they bring the sacrifice to God. That's the focus. It isn't how did they learn this? Who taught them? What exactly? That isn't the focus. The focus is people who walk with God bring all that they do to him for his blessing and his glory. That's how why we live. We live for the glory of God. And so Abel is coming to God out of a perfunctory, rigid, okay, I got to do this. I'll bring a part of my crop to God. Abel says, I want to bring this to God in worship and devotion. I will bring the first fruit of what? From my flock, the best. You don't get that sense from the language about Cain. And then when you see his attitude reflected in his dialogue with God, this is an angry, bitter man. Isn't that, it's just amazing how the deterioration from Adam's sin, how the deterioration starts so quickly. And it just keeps getting worse. Is there a significance in, in um, the firstlings uh, of the flock and the fat thereof? Yes, that would be, again, this is, this is the language of, um, of sacrifice. In other words, to be burned, to be burned on an altar. The, the text isn't explaining all this to us. I mean, because that's the, that, and I know it sounds frustrating. You kind of wish, I wish we had an introductory paragraph where God said, now here's what I want you to do. <laughs> and this is how, it, it, we don't, we don't have that. But it, it gets us back to what I think is probably the point. This is to be voluntary. It's to be worshipful. It's because you want to do it. That's not how Cain's approaching it. Joel, did you have your hand up? I wasn't uh, sure. I did. Yeah. I guess I was just going to comment or suggest it's, you know, what you're saying is it's not about grain versus meat. I don't think so. Or vegetable versus meat, but really about the attitude. That's right. So I was just thinking about, obviously, there's lots and lots of examples where, you know, God uh, instructs sacrifices of, you know, a drink offering, That's right. a cave offering, a grain That's offering. That's right. That's right. So it's not necessarily the object no. that's being offered by the attitude. You're absolutely right. It isn't that it's grain versus an animal. That's, that's not what it's about. You're right. So in our worship today, when we give, um, we can miss out on blessing by just perfunctory giving, rather than offering it as a <clears throat> as a form of worship. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe you know we we tend to do that. Um, at least I I can. Well, I think that's I think that's myself. part of the the. the the nature of us as humans, we uh, we often do things very perfunctorily. We get up at the same time, we drink our coffee at the same time, we you know go to sleep at the same, time, and okay now it's time to go to church. We go to church. It's just that, and walking with the Lord is to break us of that, so that we see everything we do as eternally significant, important. We do have a schedule, we do plan, but we draw God into all of it, including the the intentional desire to go to church, to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, the living God, 
who's given us everything. We owe everything to him. And I know some of you might agree with, but I remember when we were raising the kids, that Sunday morning was always absolutely by far the worst day of the week. <laughs> and part of it was because it's a different routine, but the kids didn't want to go. You had to just, I mean, you just had to like shackle them and just, we are going to church, you know, kind of thing. And I mean, therefore, you know, so you get, particularly really young children, I mean, until you get them all ready and get everything, particularly if you have more than one, and get it all on. By the time you finally sit down in the worship service, your mind is on anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you're angry at your wife because she didn't do enough, or she's angry. And, you know, you had trouble getting to the card and stuff, or all the many, many things that can happen. And, you know, Peggy and I used to say, uh, before I started traveling so much, you know, Sunday morning is spiritual warfare par excellence. And, you know, I'm not sure that's always true, but there's something to that. So that you you end up going to church with your, just all the wrong motives, you're anxiety-ridden, you're frustrated, and it takes you an hour and a half to settle down by that time that the pastor's ready to say the benediction. You know? Sometimes it's a Sunday morning miracle. You have all of these hassles getting there, and then when you sit down... Smiling, yeah. <laughs> perfect family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peggy used to say, "If we'd only put a sign, if you knew what we had to do to get here, you know, type of thing." But uh, so it, we're we're drawing some inferences from some of this language, but I think it's legitimate to draw those inferences of what is really going on. And again, what really demonstrates this is the dialogue God has with Cain. So can we start that? That's a way of saying we're going to start that. So in the middle of verse 5, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. His face fell. What do you think that means? Some of your translation might have it a little differently, but his face downcast. In other words, you could see it, his body language, Everything about Cain's demeanor, the old, the old English, you just say, his countenance, you know, countenance, that's the facial expression. Everything about Cain, he's moping, he's angry, he's bitter. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? See, the key, and again, ESV translates it well, the key is on not just the act. It's what all is involved in that. If you really approach me with the right motives, the right attitudes, the right worship, I'm not going to turn you away. God is trying to talk Cain out of his bitterness. Talk Cain out of his jealousy. Putting it another way, he's trying to encourage Cain to confess his shortcoming. I'm sorry, Lord. I want to learn from this mistake. You don't get that impression with Cain, do you? His heart is hardening. Instead of responding to the gentle touch of God, come on, Cain. Let's, let's deal with some of the things that are really causing this bitterness in your heart. Cain's not interested. And then this extraordinary statement, it's really a, 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 
that declare it's just incredibly powerful. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And I want to make a number of comments about this. The word crouching. The word crouching. The Akkadian for that, which a cognate for that, is demon. It's it's a it's a word that has demonic connotations to it. It is a word that brings up the image of what happened to Eve. Satan wants you, Cain. Beware. You are starting down the path of your mother who was deceived and your father who willfully, intentionally defied me. It's crouching. It's a cognate for demonic. Satan, again. And then this very powerful word, its desire is for you. It is exactly this. This is exactly the same language that you see in chapter three, in verse sixteen. It's exactly the same word when when God says to Eve and to Adam, but it's to, particularly to Eve, because of the rebellion, the intended beautiful role and relationship between a man and a woman is going to be destroyed. Your desire will be for your husband, and his response is he's going to rule over you. There are two negative words. Remember we talked about that? It's exactly the same words in Hebrew. It's exactly the same thing. So as the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve upset the marital relationship, and it will take God's grace to repair that, God is saying to, to, to Cain, listen, Cain, crouching at the door to seize and jump on you, is the satanic power. It desires for you. It lusts after you, not in a sexual sense, but lusts after you to have you, to capture you. And if you're not careful, it's going to win. You must seek to defeat it. You must seek to rule over it. If you don't, your downward spiral will be accelerated. That's back of all this, this language. So again, I want you to really understand what's going on. God is dialoguing with Cain, trying to confront him, to get him to a point where he is, he is going to change and be transformed, to confess his attitude, to confess, and he doesn't want his, he just goes the opposite direction. His heart is hardened even more deeply. He could care less what God is saying. And God warns him, say, Cain, you don't understand. The steps you are taking, it's just crouching at the door. It's desire. It lusts for you. It wants to grab you and draw you into its circle of, of devious uh, depravity. And if you're not careful, that's, what you're gonna, that's what's going to happen to you. And the language of verse 8, 9, and 10 Absolutely nothing happened in Cain's heart. But a deepened, hardened, intentional, willful rebellion against God. 
you have to understand that Cain was a farmer, and farmers are never happy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, I'm, I'm going to argue, uh, why was Cain uh, so bitter? And he's, he's tilling the soil that God had told Adam, you're going to toil with the sweat of your brow. So he's, he probably figures he, he doesn't have the easy life that Abel does. That could be part of it, you know, raising sheep. And it's easier. Uh, yeah. Well, Braden, you're test. speaking like a Kansas farmer. So I don't <laughs> When I traveled some, I used to meet with farmers all the time. And you, you are absolutely right. I, I, there are many places I can think of all over the Midwest where every morning you go in and a group of farmers are sitting in this little restaurant drinking coffee, and there's nothing positive in the conversation. They either got too much rain last night or didn't get enough rain. And the Chicago Board of Trade is messing up the, the, you know, the, the commodity. I mean, it's just there's nothing. So you're, in a way, you're right. But I'm not sure we can read Kansas into Genesis chapter 4. My version uses the word, this is the NIV, uses the word favor, look with favor. Yeah. And this is a little similar to the situation with with Jacob and Esau, isn't it? Um, God's favor of of Jacob. Yeah, that's a... But that's a difference. It's a little bit of a different context uh, of what God, uh, Paul's the one who really talks about it that way. Uh, I I, um, I I understand why NIV used the word favor. I like, though, better, and that's why I'm using ESV here, I like the idea of regard because it, it, it's, because to a, to a degree, the word favor means, or it can mean in English, their intent was trying to merit God's favor, earn God's favor. You see, you see what I'm saying? When you use the word favor, and that's, I'm not working for God because I can't work for God's favor. It's part of his grace. It's the, it's the worshipful response to God's grace, not to earn it. And that's what's at stake here. It's not earning God's grace. It's responding to God's grace. Abel responded properly to God's grace. Cain responded improperly to God's grace. And God is trying to get him Okay, learn from this, Cain. Let me talk you out of this bitterness. And he, he you know, obviously that's not what he does. Well, Isn't there a lesson for Christians here? I would think so. It is not <clears throat> believing in Christ. And it's not just accepting him, but accepting him into your heart and loving him. Mm-hmm. And be grateful. It starts with faith and all the response, the loving obedience and desire to worship and walk with Him. Yeah, all of that. Until He's in our heart. Yeah, it's you're not gonna, you will not. Until He's in your heart, you'll be like Cain. Cain's a man of works. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a way, that's right. That's right. Let's look at this very familiar part of the narrative that most of us are real familiar with. But verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, the language of verse 8 is to cause us to think this is premeditated. This isn't an accident. Oh, I think I'll kill my brother now. This is a premeditated, so he... He spoke to the idea. He goes out into the 
the field where Abel's sheep are grazing or whatever with what intent to have a conversation? He brings him a cup of coffee. They sit down and take a break. I don't think so. Because it says he rose up. He spoke. They were in the field. He rose up. The language of premeditation and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, this is, this, I'm sure you see this. This is parallel to God showing up in the Garden of Eden. Where are you, Adam? Now he goes to, to, to uh, Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? Does that mean God doesn't know? By the way, I haven't seen Abel for a while, Cain. Do you know where he is? Obviously, that's silly. That's not what he's doing. Again, he's trying to get Cain to answer honestly and confess to what he's doing. He won't do it. And this, this very cynical response, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, you, you, know, you know, you can just hear the cynicism dripping from his lips. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the, God, from the ground. God sees and God holds accountable. I mean, that's a metaphor. It's figurative language. I mean, the, you know, the blood isn't crying, but you know what I mean. That there is shed blood from a premeditated act of murder. God sees it. Now God is going to hold him accountable. And the curse upon Abel, excuse me, upon Cain is severe. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. From your hand, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. Cain is forever banished from the fertile land of God. He's no longer going to be a farmer. That, that's what he was, but he's banished from that. Now he's going to be a fugitive. Now he's going to be a wanderer. So he goes from a farmer to a nomad. <clears throat> the place of security and blessing and fertility and productivity to a nomadic wanderer. Does this suggest then that this uh, making the ground even more difficult to cultivate, does that continue on to other to That's us? That's a good question. Uh, I, I'm not sure we should necessarily see it that way, Jim, because of what God said to, Ab- Ab- to Adam, very severe language there. He's just saying to Cain, you have been a farmer. You're not going to be a farmer anymore. You, you, no matter what you try to do with the land, it won't be productive. You're now a nomad. You're a nomadic wanderer. That's what you're going to do the rest of your life. And um, as you'll see in a minute, what happens to the to the line of Cain, which is what the next section's all about. It's an unbelievable thing that happens to the line of Cain. But I mean, you have to you have to get that. There's all kinds of important figurative stuff going on here. But the land was productive. The land was fertile, and that's what Cain did. God said, "No longer." Now, the security. 
and the fertility and the productivity, which you had enjoyed, no longer. You're not going to be a farmer anymore. All that's gone. You're now a wanderer, a nomadic wanderer. And he goes to the land of Nod. Nod in Hebrew means nothing. It's not that we're supposed to find Nod on the map. Maybe, maybe there, but we, there's no place on the map we create. But you're going to land of nothing. That's what, that's what, it's really the, the play on words there is powerful. Cain, you went, you're going from security and fertility and productivity to nothing because of what you've done. Don't we see that so often today? I mean, Absolutely. People really Absolutely. make terrible decisions and then Absolutely. the consequences. That's exactly right. Just like That's why what happens to Cain is an, is a, an archetype of always what happens to a life of rebellion against God. You go to the land of Nod. You, I mean, you're, you're, and I, you know, obviously God's grace in Christ interrupts that and, and can save you from that. But if you continue in that, in that rebellious, defiant, hard-hearted response to God, your destiny is the land of Nod. And I, I mean, it's just, I, I know you, so I've seen it in so many men's lives over the years. I mean, it's just, they, they will not, they will not own up to their defiance in their lives. It's just really tragic. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're not successful, enough, but there's just everything, their families fall apart. They, 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 they just lose everything that's significant. Whatever they're being, whatever they're choosing to do, it's just, it's really a sad thing to see. And, and God says to Cain, I warned you, I tried to talk you out of this, but your heart kept hardening and hardening and hardening. Now, everything that defined your security and your fertility and purpose is gone. You're going to the land of not. You'll be a nomadic wander in nothingness. I mean, it's the, the figurative play on words here is quite powerful. Jim, was this a forever ban on change? That he, he could not be reconciled to God? I, the only way I can answer that, Fred, is that there does not seem to be any indication that Cain wanted to repent of what he had did, said, in his whole attitude. So it's on him. So it's on him. And when you see, like Lamech, and what follows in this next section, which these are names we've never heard of, but it's really interesting how God, or what, what happens here, what God said would happen, the downward spiral just accelerates. In the line of Cain, you really see it. It's rapid. All of a sudden, you have Cain's descendants destroying the institution of marriage in the creation ordinance, and Lamech rises up and kills someone too. And he boasts in how many people he's killed. Two things. Chapter one, humans creating the image of God. Now you have Lamech wantonly destroying image bearers. Chapter two, the crown of God's uh, sixth day is creation of institution of marriage, which is the key to organized civilization and blessing. What does he do? He defies it, becomes a polygamist. Taking lots of women. Isn't it interesting? The decline of civilization is marked by two things. Disregard for the image bearers of God and disregard for the most important institution God created. See any evidence of that in 5,000 years of history? The evidence of, of decline is always those two things. That's the primary evidence of decline. Everything else falls from that. But if those two things where you, you no longer hold in high regard human life as a value and worth because they bear God's image, 
and the importance of the institution of marriage. As those two things decline, so does everything else. Again, that's why Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are so important. High view of the worth and value of life, high view of the worth and value of marriage. And if you don't maintain those, which is exactly where everything falls apart in the first couple chapters following Genesis 1 and 2, then everything starts the downward spiral. You almost think the Bible just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over to us. All right. In, uh, in verse 410, God says, What hast thou done? Is that the same power, the same behemoth? Yes. That, uh, yes. 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 Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let me. Um, I don't want to hurry, but can I finish this before we break? You know, not, I don't know why I'm asking your permission. But you're a fugitive wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And see, Cain is aware there is that legitimate, that legitimate expectation that someone else will seek to do the justice and take my life. I've shed blood, take my life. And the Lord said, no. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put the mark on Cain, lest who found him should attack him. There is nothing in the Bible that helps us to understand what that mark was. There's been all kinds of creative scholarship on this. But when you have nobody really reaching consensus on what it really means, the best thing to say is, we don't really know what this means. But in some way, God marked him. God would take care of the vengeance against Cain. Nobody else will. So Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. East. Again, Nod means wandering, nothing. That's what it means. There may be a place, it says it's east of Eden, but there, we can't identify that on any map. We don't know what that means. Now, what follows, um, and I'll just introduce this, because next week um, we'll, we'll get into chapter 5, but we'll cover chapter 5 in about two minutes, because chapter 5 is a genealogy, and you don't want me to go over every one of those. I'm not going to go over every one. But there's a main point about chapter 5, which we'll emphasize. But, I, but we're almost out of time, but I want to draw your attention to verse 19, and I'll come back to this next week, verse 19 of chapter 4, and Lamech had two wives. And then verse 23, the boast of Lamech, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Audacity, boasting, I murdered somebody, and I'm proud of it. So again, I'm, I'm drawing your attention. Lamech is in the line of Cain. He's a descendant of Cain. And Lamech illustrates the downward spiral of a hardened, rebellious heart against God. Civilization begins to unravel. And the two linchpins of civilization is see life the way God sees human life. 
his image bearer. That's why it's of value and worth to him. And two, the deterioration of marriage. Those two things are the pillars of civilization. And when those two things deteriorate, the downward spiral accelerates. That's exactly what happens. Cainite civilization, which is what we'll look at next week, is a, a civilization of rapid, unbelievable decline. And God will respond by sending the flood. And he'll start over. Because the language is very clear. If I do not start over, civilization will destroy itself. It will annihilate themselves. So I'm going to start over. And that, that we have to understand that. that the flood that's in the, is a moral, ethical decision of God. And I'm going to talk about that next week. So, All right? I'm going to pray and we'll get out of here. I shouldn't say it that way. I'll pray and then we'll worshipfully leave the room. (laughs) Lord, thank you for our study and that we have the opportunity to really take apart these very familiar passages in the early chapters of the Bible and really understand how absolutely central they are for understanding the rest of the 66 books of the Bible. Because it helps us to understand the depths of the human condition, where the problem lies, and how you are seeking to resolve that problem for the human race. And ultimately, of course, that all points to the coming of Jesus. So we are are thankful we have this opportunity to study, and it gets us back to what are the really foundational principles that, um, that you lay down for civilization, for the human race. And we also see very early on that rather horrible consequences of defying that. We saw it with Cain and the tragedy of Cain's life. What a, what a tragedy he really is because of his heart and how he chose in a hard-hearted manner to defy you. And the consequences are so glaring. Thank you, we know Jesus. Thank you, we've experienced his forgiveness and cleansing. And we're learning what it means to walk with you, not out of rigid type performance-based faith, but out of loving obedience because of your grace. We want to walk with you day in and day out. Be with these men and their many responsibilities and all the things they're involved with and what they do and what they say and even in their attitudes. May they please you and represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.